When God the Son uh, trod this planet, who was it that gave him the toughest time? Where did he find the most resistance? Was it the worldly atheist? Or the practitioner of illicit sex? Or the outlaw? He was called the friend of sinners, wasn't he? His enemies used that to demean him. He, he wore it as a badge of honor. And we're so thankful that he did. It was the religious leaders that gave him the hardest time. Those who sought to earn their relationship with God through their works through the strict observance of Old Testament law and their endless interpretations of that law. And such a pursuit is called legalism. And it is natural to the human heart because it exalts self. If I work really hard and perform well, then I can feel good about myself. And if my neighbor, as in you, don't kind of meet my mark, then I can look down on you and feel puffed up through self-righteousness. Not a righteousness that comes from God. It never will come from heaven. But, you know, in my own mind, I can delude myself. Unfortunately, because it is in league with our deepest impulse, it's kind of difficult to get rid of. As theologian S. Lewis Johnson points out, one of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian Church today is the problem of legalism. One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, was the problem of legalism. In every day, it is the same. Then he goes on to describe something of its effects. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the believer. And with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless profession. The truth is betrayed, and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under law is a miserable parody of the real thing. I don't want to be a miserable parody. I want the real thing, and I know you do as well. You wouldn't be here today. In today's passage, Jesus meets this life-sucking propensity head-on as he reveals a power and a compassion that will relieve us of our burdens. Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went on, a, on the Sabbath through the grain fields. He's up in northern Galilee, Right? His headquarters was Capernaum on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Not the big city. This is a more rural environment where common people heard him gladly. The sophisticated, not so much. So there he is. And on Sabbath, he went through the grain fields. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, the very strict legalists, they said to him, Behold, your disciples <clears throat> do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? 
he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have uh, not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Here's Jesus again saying things that just would blow their minds. goes against everything they had learned from childhood. In six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh, he rested. That is, he ceased to create new things. We see today adaptability going on within a kind, but we don't see one kind becoming another kind. So after six days of creating new things, he stopped. And that's the seventh day of rest. We measure a year by the time it takes the earth to rotate the sun, right? We measure a month by the time it takes the moon to orbit the earth. We measure uh, a day by the time it takes the earth to rotate once on its axis. Where does the week come from? Where does that unit of measurement come from? The Bible. The six days of creation. We have no cosmic measuring rod for it. Six days of creation plus the day of rest. The Hebrew word for, the day of, uh, for this day of rest is Sabbath. It comes from a root word meaning intermission. This Sabbath day rest, it was precious to the Jews because it was a sign given by God to them of this covenant relationship. The Lord commands Moses. This is the Lord speaking to Moses in Exodus 31. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath. To celebrate. It was a cause for celebration. The Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. But on the seventh day, he ceased from labor. So the seventh day of the week, corresponding with our Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is the seventh or last day of the week. It was to be a day of R&R, as defined as rest and reflection. A day to celebrate the believers being uh, the, set apart as God's own possession, where he, he takes us as his own, adopts us into his forever family, so that we can say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. How beautiful is that? But far from entering into a spirit of celebration through praise and worship and thanksgiving as we are doing today, the legalists use it to burden believers and to beat them into submission. That's why Jesus pushed hard against this false idea, how to please God through your rules keeping. They found, these legalists, that the disciples were guilty on several accounts of Sabbath day violation. Picking the heads of grain was tantamount to reaping 
rubbing the grains in their hands to, to break the kernel from the husk, that was equal to threshing, and then blowing the chaff away. You wouldn't want to chew on that. Just, that now they're winnowing. <laughs> and the whole process was preparing a meal. All of this was forbidden on the Sabbath. Roman general Pompey was able to take Jerusalem in 63 B.C. by planning the attack on the Sabbath. He waited until the Sabbath because they knew that there would be a lot of Jews that wouldn't break the Sabbath by picking up a sword to defend themselves. And by the way, when did Hamas stage its attack this month? The Sabbath. Not just any Sabbath. It was the end of their, their week-long Feast of Tabernacles. What's the Feast of Tabernacles? That commemorates how God brought them faithfully through the wilderness when they lived in little tabernacles or huts, portable dwelling places, and into the Promised Land. And that's when Hamas staged their evil assault to try to catch them unaware during a, t- a time of celebration and relaxation. You'll notice that in answering his Sabbath day critics, Jesus went to the word of God. He reminded them that David, another king of Israel that they rejected at first, what David did when he and his men were hungry, they ate the consecrated bread, the 12 loaves that were offered to God, baked new every week. And after a week, they they brought out the new ones and then the the old ones were given to the priest. You know, you'd say, yeah, it's, it's worse than day-old bread, but still, this had been dedicated to God, so there was something very special about that. And it was for the priests only, the descendants of Aaron only could eat that bread. Yet David ate it, and God never rebuked him for it. David was rebuked when he sinned. He was not a sinless man. And the consequences were severe, but God never rebuked him for eating this consecrated bread. For in God's economy, human need transcends religious ritual. Then in verse 5, he points out that the innocent priests in the temple continually break the Sabbath by kindling fire slaughtering and then lifting up the animal sacrifices. That's why they wore linen. You know, it could breathe a little bit. It was unlawful, according to the legalist, to lift anything heavier than two dried figs. (laughs) It's heavier than two dried. And they were doing it every Sabbath. And yet, they were innocent. And so there's this hypocrisy going on. The priests in the temple were innocent, and yet he says in verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. The temple was a special place. It began as the tabernacle, the, the, the portable meeting place where God would meet with his people. The, 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 tent, the tent had a special compartment called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was 
It contained the Ten Commandments and a couple of other things. And on the top, it was a mercy seat of God. And that was like the focused presence of God. The temple, when Jesus is saying this, didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. 600 years earlier, when Nebuchadnezzar came and ransacked Jerusalem, it disappeared. Not even Indiana Jones knows where it is. So when Jesus is talking to them and saying something greater than the temple is here, he's saying, you have lived without the presence of God. But I'm Emmanuel. Emmanuel has come right on time. God with us is what the name means, right? From Isaiah. And not only that, but he is also that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he is both the high priest and the sacrifice, all rolled up in one. So some, something greater, should I say someone greater than the temple, was there. He tries to expand the, this, the legalist's loveless perception of who he is and what God is about. It's not about empty outward observances, but compassion. I love that word. He says there, God is about compassion, which is why in 2 Corinthians 1.3, he is called the father of compassion, that is the source of compassion, and the God of all comfort. Do you know God like that? Or is he a judge ready to send a thunderbolt and you step out of line. The word compassion, combination of a couple of Latin words, com meaning with and passus meaning to suffer. Literally, it means to suffer with someone. Someone that has compassion is empathetic. I like that word better than sympathetic. Some dictionaries say sympathetic, but empathetic really brings it into the heart of the individual that has compassion. The Father of compassion has entered into our suffering, which is why he sent Christ. And he intends for us to show compassion to those under the burden of sin, instead of beating them down or judging them, heaping shame and guilt upon them. We need to remember, as Paul told the Romans, that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. That means nothing that you can do in your own strength is going to justify you before God. Just justification, or it, it, it means to be acquitted of all charges against us. And we know our, our own hearts condemn us, the Bible says. But God is greater than our hearts. We are justified. We are acquitted of all charges on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. So, we're not to use this freedom that we have in Christ, who has forgiven us. All our sins, past, present, future, not to use that as a license to sin. However, we must not give 
or receive condemnation based upon what is done or undone. We don't act as a judge, but rather we are to cultivate compassion. You know, being a Christian is, is a lifelong process, it's a sanctification process, is a religious word that's used of growing from glory to glory into the image of Jesus by the power of his spirit so that we look more like this. He's the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. We should also show then compassion. Let the love of Christ constrain us, as Paul writes to the Corinthians. Live by the law of love, and we won't need any written code to follow. You know, when, the, when the, they asked Jesus, you know, what's the greatest commandment? You know, they had the Ten Commandments, Decalogue. And they're saying, okay, what's the greatest one? Let's, let's put them in order of priority. What did Jesus say? He took the ten. Now, they, the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes in particular took the ten and made hundreds of commands from the ten. Jesus does the opposite. He distills it down to two. And really, he distills it down to one word. Love. It's all about God. God is love. He said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything that is in you is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you don't need a written code. You know, I'm not a complicated man. Give, give it to me simple. You know, <laughs> what are we talking about here? You're talking about receiving the love of God and sharing it. That's what life is about. And it's, I've experienced nothing richer or fuller in my earthly sojourning. I love the way the theologian Matthew Poole puts it. He says, where two laws in respect of some circumstance seem to clash one with another, so as we cannot obey both, our obedience is due to that which is the more excellent way. You know, in his letter, first, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he's talking in, first, in chapter 12 about all these gifts that, that they glory in, the Corinthian church. Though he says, you're just babes in Christ. Man, you're, you're so immature. You're walking like mere men. Envy and strife among you. But, but they gloried in the fact that they had the gifts of the Spirit, in particular, the gifts of speaking in unknown language. And so he says, yeah, 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 these are good gifts for sure, but let me show you a more excellent way. And, and what do we have in the next chapter? Chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13. You've been to a wedding lately? It's the love chapter. And if I speak with the tongues of angels... An unknown language, but have not love. I'm just a noisy gong, a claiming symbol. I'm obnoxious, in other words. <laughs> if I don't have love, this is the more excellent way. Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel churches, um, I've heard him say on more than one occasion, when looking at two principles, uh, maybe that, that there's not a clear definition scripturally about a certain matter he said i will err on the side of grace 
If it's clear in Scripture, then that's what we do to bless God. But if it's not clear, there's these two ideas that I will choose the, the, the more excellent way, the way of grace. And I'm willing to err on that side. If I get to heaven and God said, well, you, you, you know, that wasn't quite right here. That's okay. I'll take that kind of feedback, but I don't think that's going to happen. At this point, Jesus concludes with a very bold statement in verse 8. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Nobody talked like this. All of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they would quote somebody else. But they would never take this kind of authority, the Son of Man. And they knew who he was referring to. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he is saying, that in the end, their legalistic arguments are, mute, are moot because he, the Son of Man, is greater than and has authority over the Sabbath. And they, their, their laws really focused primarily on the Sabbath because it was so visible. How can he claim such a thing? <clears throat> the answer lies in the origin of the Sabbath day. Remember, Sabbath was created by the Creator after six days of coding information, downloading DNA into every irreducibly complex cell of every living thing on earth that first week. That's where the Sabbath day of rest came from. The Creator. And who is the Creator? Have you read the Gospel of John? I love the way John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So this Word that was with God in the beginning and was God is the Creator. Later on in that first chapter, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John was not confused about Jesus' identity. He was God, the second person of the Godhead, who in Colossians says, All things are made by and for Him. He is the Creator. The Sabbath day is his idea. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. That is what he is saying. And here is his intent in Mark 2, 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Again, Jesus is just blowing some minds here. The Sabbath, this whole idea of Sabbath day rest, that was made for man, not to add burdens upon him, but, you know, allow him to take a deep breath and just enjoy the presence of God. And I think it would do everybody good if they took one day and just rested and reflected upon what God has done. You know, to, to take a day, it was an agrarian society in, in, in the beginning, very much so. And, and uh, so one day 
when you could have been out there tilling the soil and, and fertilizing it and, and you know, harvesting something or, or uh, caring for your flock, that meant a day maybe uh, you, you, of inactivity, you're not going to be as rich the next day. He's saying, trust me. Don't fret about your livelihood or increasing your worldly goods. There's something more important that you need to care for. That is your soul. So let's, let's just put all that down. Don't look at the stock market and what's going on. <laughs> just stop. Be still and know that I am God. And you'll find rest for your soul. Right? That's, that's Christ's call to us. We do well. As we're reminded in Hebrews 10, verse 25, not to forsake our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I realize some of you don't live in the area they're watching online, and others may not in a place to come, but if you are able to come, do it. There's something that happens here that you can't replicate watching a screen. We encourage you to come. All the more as you see the day, what day? What day are we talking about? The day of Christ's return. He wasn't late the first time, and he won't be late the second time. And he says, you'll know the day is near when you see a few things. Perry talked about, you know, when people start calling good evil, and evil good, when the love of many waxes cold, when lawlessness increases. You, you read how many people are shooting each other around town? I've never seen anything like that. But he says in this too, when you, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Israel is at war. My friend Mickey in Israel, when I reached out to him, he, his first line was, Israel is at war. But what that set off is rumors of war. How many have heard about the potential World War III? If Iran and Russia get drawn into this, when you see these things, these wars and rumors of wars, look up! Because your redemption draws nigh. And when you see this happening, make sure that you're assembling together with the saints. It's where you need to be. It's where you're going to be comforted. You're going to be strengthened. And as a community of faith, we don't, go in, we don't march into the future with fear. No! That's for the unbeliever. Let them grovel and hide and be consumed with anxiety. And, and, and we, we march into the future knowing the one with whom we have to do, and in the one, one in whose hand all life is held. And the future for the you know, our destiny is very bright. And so we need to shine like stars. Because <laughs> the firmament is getting black, darker and darker, that we would shine, in, by contrast, brighter and brighter. As you see that day drawing near. This is what God has called us to do. 
As Spurgeon points out, though Jesus had nothing to learn, yet he went to the assembly on the day which the Lord God had hallowed. And there are some of you that maybe think, preacher's got nothing to teach me. I don't need to go. I don't need to be there. Again, I realize I'm singing to the choir. (laughs) But oh, how we need to be in the assembly of the saints that first day of the week. And we're going to conclude now with one last Sabbath day incident that beautifully underscores the heart of God. Verse 9. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold... There was a man with a withered hand, and they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In order that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So then... It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He's setting the terms for all their religiosity. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored to normal like the other. This episode in the synagogue, it reveals two kind of amazing facts about these uh, Pharisees. One They knew that Jesus was such a man of compassion that he would seek to relieve someone's suffering no matter what day it was. And two, that he had the power to do it. This was the trap. The trap only worked if the healing was successful. And we wonder, wow, even though they knew this of this and they believed this about him, they refused to believe in him because he operated outside their narrow interpretation of the law. Jesus then uses pure logic to unmask their hypocrisy. If someone's sheep falls into a pit, that person's going to pull their sheep out of the pit no matter what day of the week it is, Sabbath or no Sabbath. And a person made in the image of God is infinitely more valuable than any animal. Therefore, he deduces, and he declares with supreme authority, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's pure logic. But then he did something that defied all logic. He tells this man with a withered hand to stretch it out. At that point, the man could have argued with the Lord, said, if I could stretch it out... I wouldn't be in this predicament. Or he could have thought to himself, you know, I've tried to stretch it out a hundred times. I know it always ends badly. No, I've got no strength. I am unable to succeed. So why even try? Have you ever thought that? Kind of a defeatist attitude. But this man doesn't argue with the Lord. Instead, in simple childlike faith, he believes that he can do what Jesus has called him to do, even though he knows it's not in him. And in that moment that he acts upon his faith, God's grace, God's strength, is poured out upon him, enabling him to do that which was formerly impossible. 
Is there anything too hard for God? The Bible says no. He is the God of the impossible. Do you think the command to love your spouse is beyond you? God will enable you if you're willing to stretch out and trust him. Do you feel impure habits have hopelessly enslaved you? Jesus will set you free if you're willing to let go and let God. That's his promise. For as Matthew Henry points out, with the command, there is a promise of grace. Again, grace, that's God's strength for our weakness. And I'll end with this. Polster George Barna, you've heard of the Barna, reported that half of those who describe themselves here in America as born-again Christians believe that a person can earn their salvation based upon good deeds even without accepting Jesus Christ as the way to eternal life. That's a lot of people that call themselves born-again Christians. Half of them believe you can work your way to heaven. I remember meeting a woman after service one Sunday, a very old woman. She'd been coming for quite a while, and she loved it here. But afterwards, she mentioned something about hoping that she would go to heaven when she died. But she wasn't sure because she'd done some bad things in her life and in her many years. And I can't tell you how my heart sank. I said, Pastor, you have failed this woman by not convincing her of the good news. What she was describing was not good news. It was a works-based approach to God. And so I went over with her again. You know that God has taken all your sin as you've trusted in Christ, cast it as far as the east is from the west to remember it no more. Why are you still remembering it if God isn't holding it against you? That's the good news. This trying to work their way to heaven or believing it's even possible, that's the way of the legalist. Only leads to pride on good days and condemnation on bad days. You might as well hope to turn a black horse white by pelting it with snowballs, Spurgeon said. What hope do you have? Zero. The promise of grace, on the other hand, is for all who, like this man with the withered hand, simply take God as his word. This is the word of God, if you have a Bible, a digital copy, or the real thing. This is the word of God. And God cannot lie. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You shall be delivered from our wretched life to a full, fruitful life. Beginning now, because eternal life, Jesus says, is knowing him in this way. Having a relationship with God in this way. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Let us reach out to him in our weakness. And he will strengthen, comfort and guide us, for he is the mighty God. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. 
the wellspring of all compassion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, just, I love that. We don't use the word wellspring much these days, but that is, that is this inexhaustible resource flowing and, and refreshing our souls. All because you were able to enter into our suffering and provide a way of escape. Oh God, we thank you for that. And if there's anyone here that's listening and hearing my voice right now that has not opened your heart to this great God and Savior, do it now. With simple faith, just reach out to Him and lay hold of all that He offers. A new life, a full and fruitful life. Through his sacrifice, when he bore in his body our sin upon the cross. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ that maybe are part of this 50% Barna research group that still thinks it's, you can work your way to heaven, which implies that's what they're trying to do. Let today be just a day of celebration, a day of liberation. Just cast all your cares upon him who cares for you. And he will free you from all such striving and selfish ambition, self-righteousness. Lord, we offer up our bodies a just a living sacrifice, come and dwell in us richly. Not because of anything we have done, but simply because of your great mercy with, and, and love with which you loved us. We don't put our trust in any of those things, any of our religious rituals, even as good as some of these traditions may be. We don't trust in them. We trust in what you have done on our behalf. We trust in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.